You're listening to the weekly podcast of the services at Stonegate Fellowship Church in Midland, Texas. For more information about Stonegate, visit StonegateFellowship.com. Let's uh, go ahead and find our way to a beginning point here. Good morning to you for the last morning of the year. It's been great being with you this year, and thanks for you guys honor us by uh, by being here. I uh, we really are honored to teach you guys, and uh, I want to remind you of a couple of things. You can find your way to Hebrews, uh, the chapter. 12 and 13, we'll try to finish up Hebrews. If you look at your piece of paper that was handed to you, I hope you've already read enough of it to be tweaked by a couple of things. And uh, I will not try to cover every point, uh, Mr. Kulon, so I'm just going to skip through it already, just to let you know. Uh, but a couple of things, uh, if, you're, um, if you're aware of our element services that we have on the first Wednesday night of the month, we have another one tonight. You don't have to be a member of Stonegate to be a part of that. I hope you can be here tonight at seven. We're baptizing 50 people. And in fact, it's, we've kind of, it's kind of a funny thing if you could sit in our staff meetings when we talk about how many people we're baptizing because we know kind of the number before it gets to be really long. And this is the part that's kind of funny if you're in the, if you're in the church biz. You're like, God, we have so many people to baptize. It's going to take forever. And actually, that's a great thing, I think. And, but we know when we get to 50 that we're to... Uh, it's tough. So we actually have two baptistries going tonight. It's going to be rotating baptistries. So we'll be, one will be baptizing while another one's getting ready and then they'll baptize. I have the list. This is what a baptism thing looks like for a night like tonight. Baptism one, tub one. Baptism one, tub two. Baptism two, tub one. Baptism, we got some great people working for us or what? And so um, it is uh, something else. It's a choreographed gig going on tonight. So you want to, it's an amazing thing to see. One of the most amazing things is, I won't read the names to you, but how many, I'll just, let me kind of read this to you. Um, uh, Husband will baptize, uh, or father will baptize two children, just going down the list here. Um, Husband will baptize wife, father will baptize son, Um, dad will baptize son, dad will baptize son, Um, husband will baptize wife, uh, and it just goes on. That's just, the, that's just tub one, just tub one. So um, and it just goes on like that. But just an amazing night, and I hope you can make it and celebrate communion with us and be a part of the night. Come early, you can have a free hot dog, and uh, that can be your meal afterwards. For those of you who have been staying kind of tuned in about our camp adventures, uh, this morning I think we're right at about 800 and it's, it's either 815, 820 campers going to uh, our youth camp, which is absolutely amazing. Um, and we still have some paperwork we're going through. We'll probably be close to 900 by the time the week is over once we get through all the paperwork. And it's just an amazing stewardship the Lord has given us. Some of you have gone to Glorietta and helped get that place ready. And uh, it's going to be an amazing event. If you really want to see something amazing, be here the Sunday morning, June the 1st. I think we'll be right at 25 charter buses, and so it'll be an amazing event. When And do the math on that, if you've ever tried to figure out how much charter buses cost. And, uh, and then the funny part's going to be who the people are who are trying to take their family vacation, who end up behind our buses whenever we're on the road. So we're going to put like First Baptist on the side of the buses, and First Prez, and First Met, and then that way everybody... Nobody associates it with us, but great to be with you. Let's, uh, 
Let's finish up Hebrews here. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll dive into what I think is one of the, I love this part because it's almost like the writer of Hebrews has been trucking along and some pretty substantial teaching and then all of a sudden he realizes he's got to finish it up. And so he kind of hammers us with, you got to do this, you got to do this. It's almost like you felt like you raised your kids and just before they leave, you go, wait a minute, let's go to lunch one more time. Let me tell you everything I didn't tell you. And um, it's almost like that's what he's doing. But let's pray and we'll jump in. Lord, thank you for the blessing of waking up this morning peacefully, uh, without fear or worry and having to uh, smuggle our way to Bible study. We'll read here in your scriptures to remember those who don't have that privilege. And so forgive us for uh, only ever so often thinking about that, that freedom and that privilege and, and help us uh, to know how we can help that freedom be enjoyed by others. Open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. Thank you for these guys, for their commitment to be here, for the blessing it is to myself and the other guys who stand here. And um, just thank you again for this morning and bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. One more thing I forgot to say, I, I was thinking about going over and getting my coffee. And so a big thanks to Leon and your team and all, and David, the donut guy, and who have got you guys... Uh, Big thanks to those guys for getting us taken care of. And I can only imagine what the, ten, the temperature of this room would be if you showed up here and there were no coffee and no donuts. It be wouldn't be a Bible study. So let's go to your notes um, and we'll go to the scriptures. Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to begin reading in verse 12. I will not be reading verse by verse as we go through chapter 13. And I have written some things down that I hope you've had a chance to glean through the notes and see where hopefully I'll... Uh, by the end of the morning, tweak you a little bit on a particular subject. But let's go to verse 12 of chapter 12. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness would spring up and cause trouble, and by it many become defiled. We did a message this past Sunday on that passage. I'll skip over that this morning. If you'd like to hear something about that verse, uh, just go online and download our message. Verse 16, picking up with that thought that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent or to turn around and change this whole process. And we sought it with tears, really in the presence of his father. If you look at number one in your notes, I do want to stay here for just a minute. It's a rather um, confusing sentence. It's really probably not even a sentence, but keep fighting back for values, for roles, for purpose and goals that are rooted in God-centered security they are rooted in identity and belonging, only then followed by competence and purpose. Now, let me walk you through that real quick and say, where in the world do you see that in the scriptures? What's important for us to see is verse 12 is really an encouragement for us to understand what matters, to stay focused on what matters. And when we find ourselves not being focused, just like chapter 12, verse one and two talked about, we must recenter, refocus, encourage one another, be at peace with one another, because if we don't stay focused 
on what matters and what is essential, then the warning is in verse 16 and 17. The warning is we'll do something in the spur of the moment that we'll wish we'd never done. And, and so the same thing happened to Esau. He was exhausted But in his exhaustion, he was willing to make a compromise that deeply cost him. Sexual immorality oftentimes arrives because of exhaustion mentally and our spirit is weak and so we do not protect ourselves. And for many of us in this room, this this encouragement, especially verse 12, look at it again. Lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. I'm afraid, I know it's true for myself, I'm afraid that many of us are so exhausted, we don't know how exhausted we are. We're so busy, we don't know how exhausted we are. And our hearts are in dangerous places because of our exhaustion. I had someone in my office yesterday from out of town. And this person sitting in my office from out of town said, this city seems very just, and they can't find a word for it. And I said, busy and exhausted and overrun. And yes, absolutely. So the the encouragement for us is in this little section right here, and what I've tried to help you to see is we've got to stop long enough to say, what are the uncompromising things I stand for? What are the biblical values that are non-negotiable for me? What are the things I will cross, you know, a, a canyon for on a high wire? What are the things that determine how I behave? What is my security? Is my identity secure in the Lord Jesus Christ? Because if we don't stop long enough to get a hold of that, we'll be like Esau and we may not do something that drastic, but we may find ourselves realizing we've done some things and made some decisions that have been hurtful to ourselves and to our families. If we don't take note and realize maybe we are, we are already sort of lame in the way we're doing life. We're already sort of crippled in the way we're doing life and we're already limping in the way we're doing life. Be very careful here. He's encouraging us. When, and remember, the crowd here is under a lot of pressure. Jerusalem is under, under attack already. They're already worried about their well-being and their life. And he's saying, just be sure you understand where you are. You support each other and you grow with one another and you hold each other up so that you don't make mistakes you wish you didn't make. And when I use terms like values and your roles and your purposes and your goals, I know those sound like words you might've used in a business context somewhere. But even as I sat with a bunch of young leaders last week downtown, sitting around a table with them, just sort of staring at me with their, their eyes get younger as mine get older, and just went through my list of about 16 values that I review every year. And you guys have heard me talk about those. And every one of them has scripture written next to them to say, these are the things that are uncompromising. And I can always go back to those at least once a week now and say, am I centered on these things? I don't have to wonder about what I'm standing for and what I'm living for. And it becomes easier to answer questions. Many times I don't have to quote unquote pray about things because I already know, does this line up? Does it line up with who I am? what I'm supposed to be doing with who I am because everything that I'm supposed to be accomplishing has to be in line with those things. So please be careful where you are. And if you're, if it's kind of like what we said Sunday, I said, for those of you sitting in the room who say, well, I'm not bitter, you're probably the most bitter ones. And for those in the room this morning who are thinking, I'm not tired, you know, I'm not exhausted at all. No, not me. You probably are. So just be careful and pay attention to where your heart is, but we must move on. And I want you to look at chapter 12, verse 14 again. Chapter 12, verse 14 says, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now look at chapter 13, verse one. Let brotherly love 
continue. Let brotherly love continue. And that's the word, we, you've heard this word before, where Philadelphia comes from, this phileo type of love. It is a, it is a teammate kind of love. It is a support one another kind of love. And I very simply put in your notes, remember, relationships really do matter. And I don't think I'm among strangers that most of us as busy men trying to run businesses, raise families, uh, whether you're raising your own children or grandchildren or you're trying to help your parents now, we need other men to walk with us. We need other, other men to hold us up. I was going to use the word accountable, but that's such a, a cheapened word these days. But men who will challenge us, men who can trust each other, these relationships matter. Let brotherly love continue. So just, um, I would encourage you to just make it a matter of prayer in your own life. God, surround me with a team of men that I can trust and they can trust me. We can trust each other and we can do life together. And that's, that's a small circle. It's not a large circle. It's a small circle. And the busier you become, the more difficult it becomes to keep that circle uh, intact. Now, chapter 13, verse two, I want to move to this rather lengthy quote by C.S. Lewis. Chapter 13, verse two says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. That's kind of an interesting verse, isn't it? When you think about it. I don't think I've run into too many of them lately, but uh, I certainly have not run into them at Walmart or HEB. But I just want to tell you, it's an interesting thing to imagine. I will tell you just an honest, truthful story. I do think there was an occasion in my life where this happened. It was a long time ago. I was on a sales call. I was running up. It was my Highway 412 run every Wednesday morning. As much as I try to get away from early mornings, Wednesday mornings seem to be my early mornings. My, my sales run started at 5.30 in the morning on Wednesday mornings, and I got to go out of town and just go up into all these country towns and, and sell food to all these people, and it was highest margins. I made so much money that day. But anyways, it was a, I was out one day, and it was near the end of the day, and I was um, around, I forget the name, I forget the little town's name. And there was this little bitty hotel I used to do business with, and it always sort of had um, people... Uh, hitchhiking their way to that hotel. And I left and I was headed back to a gas station. This was back in the day when we had, remember phones that you had to pay for? Remember pay phones? And um, so I had to use a pay phone to get my orders in and all that kind of stuff. And I was driving and I was in a hurry and there was a guy on the side of the road and I drove by him and there was something in me. You know that feeling you've had when you drive by somebody and the spirit sort of tweaks you that says, you need to pay attention to that person, but you say, my mom said not to. You ever had that deal? And so, you know, the Lord, my mom, which one? And so I, uh, I drove by him and I couldn't get it out of my spirit. And so I got to a stoplight and I was in Shoto, Oklahoma. So if, you, if you're not from Oklahoma, you pronounce that when you saw it on the news, Shiutu or something like that. So I stopped and I turned around and he was gone. True story, totally true story. And I thought, huh, I drove around and thought, where in the world did that guy go? There's nowhere for him to go. And he was gone. And it was in that moment, I thought, huh, I missed that moment to actually be a part of what the Lord wanted me to be a part of. Dang you, mom. So anyways, I just, I, look at this quote from uh, C.S. Lewis. Question appearances and serve the immortals is my words, but I quoted it at length for you. It's out of a book called The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis. At the risk of in, insulting your intelligence, just to get to the, the parts in bold, I'm going to read the whole thing. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you talk to 
may one day be a creature which, if you say it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Now, if you're not used to C.S. Lewis, I just read that to you and you went, I don't get that one bit. And if you're not used to C.S. Lewis, you'll have to read him over and over and over and over again to finally get it. So don't despair that I read that sentence to you and you went, I don't understand that. But anyways, all day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. The destinations being creatures of holiness or worship or despicable creatures. It is in light of these overwhelming possibilities. In other words, the effect we have on each other. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Now nations and cultures, arts and civilizations, these are mortal and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. In all of words like no one other than C.S. Lewis could use. He says, I don't care if you like him or not. The fact of the matter is, you will not deal with a mortal today. And the Bible tells you, if you believe it to be true... There could very well be a moment where you deal with an angelic being and you'll never know it. So I just tell you, and, and this is, I, to be honest with you and just crass with you, I, I despise teachings like this. Because as a follower of the Lord Jesus, if you take this, this injunction seriously, you have to check up when you deal with people who drive you crazy. You have to check up when you're dealing with our city where everything's a long line and a wait and a hurry. You have to check up when you're dealing with that person at work that no one likes. You have to check up when you deal with people and, and you deal in context with people that are repulsive. Even though it's easy to be good to people who are not, you have to look at this and go, the Lord is putting people in my path that he, is tre he treasures their souls and he's calling me to do the same. You will not do life with just mere mortals. And I, would, I, made, I made it a part of my prayer this morning. God, help me to see people again as you see them. I think that's a prayer that you need to make a part of your life. Help me to see people as you see them. I hope you see people you do business with, that you are in sales with as, as immortals, that you are in front of, not to sell a product, but to show a life. And the product just happens to be the avenue you use to show a life. Do you do business that way? Do you see customers that way? Do you sit across the negotiating table with immortals or with people who have something you're trying to get? I don't, know, I don't know what you have to put in front of you on your desk or in your conference table. Maybe you need to find a way to get something in front of you that just reminds you on the top of your legal pad or wherever you're taking notes that says no mortals around this table. I don't know what you have to do. It will change the way you do business, that you're doing business with souls and not with people you see, so to speak. Man, I hope you see that. I, I wish I'd heard this many, many years ago. It would have changed the way. In fact, I told a bunch of young guys, this group I was meeting with last week, because one of the questions was, if you could go back and talk to your 25-year-old self, what would you say? And this is one of the things I told them. I said, I wish I would have learned to compete for people and not against them. 
So do you compete against people you do business with or are you competing for them? And you will compete for them when you begin to see them as immortals. Number four, it's right out of chapter 13, verse three. I'm not gonna spend a lot of time here, but suffer with and for others. It simply says, remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. First Corinthians chapter 12, verse 26, when one member suffers, all suffers. When one member rejoices, we all rejoice. And I, I do hope that at some point you'll take some time to do some research just to see how many brothers and sisters in Christ are imprisoned and are tortured. And um, we must not forget that in our easy life. Number five, go to chapter 13, verse four. I have a pretty lengthy paragraph here that might uh, uh, encourage you, anger you, or whatever might be the case. But it says, let marriage be held in honor among all. Let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous. Oftentimes when we read a passage like that, uh, the church and those among it will read the words for God will judge the sexually immoral and the adulterous and say, amen, so let it be. But oftentimes we forget that the reason sometimes our culture holds the marriage bed in contempt and treasures immorality and sexual immorality so much is because the light has gone out and the salt has lost its flavor. Do remember the words of the Lord Jesus. He said, you are the light of the world, you're the salt of the earth. If the salt becomes tasteless, it is worth nothing anymore except to be trampled underfoot by men. When we look at our culture trampling what we consider to be our Judeo-Christian way of life, rather than pointing the finger to the culture for disregarding our Judeo-Christian way of life, it might be important for us to take a look and see why we are trampled underfoot. Let me read this quote to you that um, I just wrote down for you and I want to tell you a few things about it. Because you hear these words a lot. We're defending marriage. Let's defend marriage. Let's defend marriage. Let's talk a little bit about that. The best way to honor marriage is to do marriage well. Remember, when our culture cheapens marriage, they can very easily point to people in America who claim to be Christian, whose very lives and testimonies have cheapened marriage as well. So be careful. I, you, I'm just gonna say this, and if you think this applies to you, I am not pointing anybody out, but you can't walk through the hallways of churches anymore and not meet one out of every third person who hasn't been divorced. Now, a lot of those are people who have come to the church for healing and restoration, but a lot of those are coming to the church for healing and restoration who claimed Christianity before they came back to the church. So be careful about this, this, rang, this, this sort of jumping all over culture. Best way to honor marriage is to do marriage well. Perhaps we might pause for a minute and carefully consider what it is we desire the government to do related to marriage. We want government out of our pocketbooks, out of our companies and our daily lives, but then we demand the government get highly involved in the defense of marriage and other social matters we either agree or disagree with. The Christian culture is an interesting culture to watch. We want the culture to do every, we want the, the government to do everything we want them to do, but then we want them to get out of what we want them out of. It's kind of an interesting conversation when you start listening to people. This is an even more complex matter when you begin to discuss who actually has the authority to sanction or approve a marriage. Now, I don't expect you to, to, to agree with me or disagree with me. I, I hope if you're a thinker, you'll take my paragraph and you'll think a little bit about it. 
But for instance, when I do marriages now, when I stand in the pulpit and do a wedding with, with um, usually typically very naive people, I, I do the, the wedding and then when it comes to the end and I say, uh, you know, used to people would say by the authority of, and they say the particular state. I don't say that anymore because the state doesn't give me authority uh, to, commem- to call a marriage holy matrimony. To me, that authority comes from the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator God who started the home and who started marriage. But you better be careful when you start talking about this issue of who sanctions or who approves a marriage because whoever sanctions and approves it gets to dictate it. And there are a lot of things you gotta think about in relationship to that. I'm just putting these things out there for you to think about. I personally wish that there were no involvement of the civil authorities related to marriage, including all tax benefits. That's usually the one everybody wants to fight over. I wish all tax benefits were out of the marriage circle. All government touching was out of the marriage circle. And and by the way, I had this, well, I'm not gonna go there. Is it the place of the church or is it the place of the civil authority? Now here's an interesting phrase, or is it a partnership? I declare to you, it's too much of a partnership even for me. And, but you better be careful. We must come to grips with the reality we live in a post-Christian culture. The community foundation for living, working, and governing is not that of a Judeo-Christian worldview anymore. Like it or not, you will not change this worldview. Watch these words. You will not change the worldview by law or by force. It has to be demonstrated, clarified, and then it is honored. Briefly, let me tell you, if you've never been on mission to a place like Africa, you don't understand this point. Because you can force on people to act Christian. And you can ask people to be democratic. But you cannot get to a democracy without a God-centered view of man. And if you start with democracy thinking you're going to get to God-centeredness, you will not. You have to start with what the scriptures teach about the value of man and the worth of man. Then you get to democracy. You can't, in fact, you will not find one non-Christian country who values life. It starts with a God-centered view of man Then it moves to the honoring of man, which is what you must have for there to be a democracy. If you don't have a God-centered view of man, you cannot have a healthy democracy. What we've lost in our country is a God-centered view of man. And therefore, we do not honor one another. Be careful because as Andy Deck and I have had a pastor in Oklahoma who used to say this, force breeds hypocrisy. And when you force you will get hypocrisy. And I would submit to you that many of us were raised in homes where Christianity was forced and one day we woke up and decided it wasn't ours. And then we had to decide if it was ours. Oftentimes what you inherit is something that was forcefully placed on people and eventually the hypocrisy of it shows up. Then a generation has to decide if it's theirs or not. The last part of that paragraph. As we are learning, when you stop demonstrating what you claim as foundational for life, that which you assume to be the dominant view will be lost and subsequently very difficult to regain. Let me tell you a little story. I wrote it in my notes here. This is why I didn't want to get caught up on another thought. Um, 
When I first became a pastor, I knew I'd have, I don't know weddings, why weddings are the thing today, but I knew I was going to have to do weddings. In fact, by the, within a month after telling my employer I was leaving to go pursue the pastorate, uh, one of the people in our office asked, will you do my wedding? And I was like, I don't even know how to do that. So anyways, here's what I used to do. When I came here, I had a standing rule. Here was the rule. And this is going to make some of you mad, so just get ready. Uh, my standing rule was if a couple came to me and they were shacking up, um, I wouldn't do their wedding. And it was really funny because you wouldn't believe how many people come to me and, and sit down across the table from me and, and um, you know, it looks like this gracious, sweet couple. And, and I can usually, I can tell now, it's taken a while, but I can always tell within five minutes whether they're shacking up. I mean, you can just tell. And I can just, and it's just, there's, I don't know, it just is, I can just tell. And uh, I've been fooled a couple of times though. And, and so I would tell couples, here's what I'd say. They, I'd, I'd go, because uh, what I'd do is I'd look up where they live, okay? And uh, some of them are a little smarter and they have separate addresses, but some of them ain't so smart. And uh, so I'll say, hey, um, are you guys uh, shacking up? I never say living together. So you guys shacking up? Because that's really what it is. And it really offends her. But uh, he's like, oh, I don't think it's shacking up. And so, I don't know, it's just free sex. So I, and I've said that too. And so I... And they'll say, yeah, yeah, we are. And you know what they say next. They say, you know, it's just better for us financially and blah, 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 blah. And so my rule used to be, well, okay, for me to do your wedding, you're going to have to live apart for six months. That was my rule. And, and I was pretty strict about it for a good six years. And, and I'd make them, I had one couple do it. Okay, and the rest, I just wouldn't do it. And, and they'd say, well, I'll find somebody. I've had them storm out of my office. God, you call yourself a minister of Jesus. And I'm like, ah, it's a free Saturday for me. So anyways, I... I wouldn't do it. And, and, um, and, and so, you know, I had all kinds of phrases that would work. I'd say to the girl, listen, if he's not willing to sacrifice six months away from you in order to marry you, then he's not worth it. I had all these great phrases. All, one day, I had a couple sitting across from me, and, and, and I used to ask people, I started, not used to, I started asking people to tell me their story of their life with Jesus and their walk with Jesus first. So I said, tell me about your walk with Jesus. And I started hearing stories. And you'd find out that many of them had some stories that were pretty interesting. And you also found out that they did not have a Judeo-Christian worldview of what it meant to love Jesus, be married, and do life. And so, something changed in me. Now, I didn't start advocating living together, but I actually started asking couples. I'd say things like this. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't, um, why don't next week you and I meet in my office and let's do a little wedding ceremony. And let's get you married, so to speak, Okay. And if you guys want to do the big showdown later, that's great. If that's making family happy, that kind of stuff, do that. But let's, let's get together and let's start walking together through your story. See, what I was so convinced of was the correctness of my view of marriage, which I think is correct, but I was forgetting that I was doing life with immortals who maybe didn't share my view or even understand it. And what I forced them to do was go to a justice of the peace. And if you are one, that's great. But I was forcing them to go to the justice of the peace. And this goes back to part of what I was telling you my paragraph. Who has the right to speak what is God-centered into the life of people? And sometimes you can get so dogmatic about your stance that you miss the immortal. And you miss the opportunity to walk with a couple. And you miss the opportunity to walk in and through redemption. See, oftentimes we see people and their lives that disgust us, but we will not take the time to push into it and find out the way they got there was not the way they meant to get there. 
And half the time they wish they weren't there. But because we're right and they're wrong, they're left to walk in their wrongness without us stepping into their hole and understanding how they got there and walking with them out of that hole. Now, eventually it's come around when in many cases I will walk with a couple again and again and again and walk with them for months to get to an altar where really, here's what I tell them now. I say, listen, you're already married. You know that, right? And they, you know what they all say? Any guesses? Any guesses? Yes. They say, we know, we know, but we don't know what to do. So we walk together and I tell them this. I say, well, here's what we're going to do. When we get to the altar, you're not going to get married. You're going to recommit to this marriage when we get to the altar. And all of a sudden, a family starts moving in and, and, and families start watching and aunts and uncles start watching. And the next thing you know, a root of the hope of Christ starts taking root in a young family who never had it. And then it starts expanding to a family. And by the time you get to the altar, you have aunts and uncles and grandfathers and grandmothers come up and say, we've never seen someone teach our children that Jesus wants to rescue what they've done rather than condemn them for where they were. Gentlemen, I don't like any more what our culture does with marriage. But you can either stand on the outside and scream at it and ask for laws to change it, or you can demonstrate a change and walk with people towards change so they see that it's worth it. And I argue to you that our culture sees us as yellers and finger pointers and not people who get down in holes and come out with people. Even though we lived in a culture many years ago that would do that. Your culture has changed. Your culture is not a Judeo-Christian foundation culture anymore. It, it, it doesn't see life that way. If you don't believe that, then just go start walking the hallways of our high schools and colleges. And you are not going to get them to become Judeo-Christian by hanging the Ten Commandments on the wall. You're not. But we will begin to see change when we demonstrate it through brotherly love and service to others. I hope you will... Uh, Take some time to think about that. And, um, you know, I'll give you another example. And then we'll, you know, we're never going to get through these, but I'll, I'll give you another example. Where I've started learning so much about this is when we as a church had not had to, but started walking with people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And you can scream and holler all you want and call them perverts. But unless you're willing to sit down across from them and start talking to them and understand their story, you're never going to get the chance to share the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ with them. And it's also quite daunting when you sit across the table from people who are living lives we consider reprehensible and find out that 95% of them grew up where? Anybody know? In the church. So it's important for us to demonstrate Jesus to them rather than trying to sell Jesus to them. Now let's go to chapter 13, verse five. I wanna hit a couple more here. You can read some of the other things that are here. Verse five Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The point of that being all you need is to know Christ. I put in your notes a couple of quotes. Greed is the assumption that everything placed in my hands is for my consumption. And secondly, the wise man carries his possessions within him. I apologize. This is how sloppy I write sometimes in my quote 
where I get my quotes from, I had written down who said the wise man carries his possessions with him, but I couldn't read my writing. So I apologize to that person whether they're alive or dead. The other one, greed is the assumption that everything placed in my hands is for my consumption comes out of Andy Stanley's book, How to Be Rich. Highly recommend you pick that book up and uh, read that book. It's a little bitty book. It's certainly not C.S. Lewison, so to speak. You can, you can pop through it, okay? So pick a copy of it up, read it, How to Be Rich. It's not a get-rich book. Um, it's not a health and wealth book. It's a, I consider it, I think it's a very evangelical, Bible-centered, God-centered um, just challenge of not how to, uh, like he says in the book, we know how to get rich, but we don't, we're not very good at being rich. And so I hope you'll pick it up. And if you don't consider yourself rich, the fact that you're sitting in this room carrying a Bible and you had coffee and donuts makes you the richest in the world. So, and if you drove here, you're the mega rich, okay? And last I checked, you didn't take public transportation this morning. The train did not stop here. So challenge you to read the book. Very, very challenging. All right, let me, let me go down to uh, number eight. You can read the part about leadership. Chapter 13, verse 9 through 13, for the sake of time, I want to let you go back and read those verses, but let me read this paragraph to you. Uh, Actually, let me read this one verse, verse 9. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings. It is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. The point of verse number 8, beware the slide to bondage. Let me read this. It seems that most teaching trends toward control and away from freedom and liberty. That's why the book Galatians was written, by the way, in the New Testament, because the church was slipping into behavior and control. Being aware of this trend will put you on alert to when it occurs and allow you to self-correct when you see it happening. In times of turmoil, trial, insecurity, and uncertainty, people often gravitate towards the safety of bondage, or you can put the word rules. Remember the children of Israel, even though they encountered trouble, they said, we should have stayed in Egypt. This happens in churches a lot because the most, uh, to, to people who, who are uh, preaching or teaching, sometimes the most frightful thing is free people. Okay? So be careful when you start to sense rules setting in and rules are good and guidelines are good, but you have to be careful because the tendency is to teach towards control rather than teaching towards freedom. And, and what, what's happening in this culture, apparently people are getting all hung up on the food you can eat and the food you can't eat and maybe even the holidays you're supposed to observe or the feasts you're supposed to observe. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, be careful, be careful. Just understand that people slide towards bondage. They, people do not slide towards freedom. They don't. They slide towards, you may not even be able to comprehend that because you're like, no, 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 I want to be free. But when it gets tough and the going gets tough and times are tough, people oftentimes slide to a place they feel is secure. And that's when tyrants dominate. Let me go to verse 16. I want to finish the last two here. I'm going to skip number nine. Just when I said grandpa was right on number nine, that's just when grandpa used to say, this world's not my home. I'm just passing through. He was right. And maybe you can go tell him that instead of uh, apologize for saying, I'm so sorry I called you out of touch. So Verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Look at number 10 and 11 with me. When it says do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices, the word for sacrifice is the word to victimize, to victimize. That's why I wrote it this way in your notes. So let me read this to you. Remember to victimize your time for the benefit of others. That's when he says do not neglect to do good 
victimize your time for the benefit of others. Now, this is an interesting phrase. It is well-pleasing to the Lord the moment you do so. In the scriptures, when it says, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God, it is written in such a way in the language it's written in to, to convey the idea that the moment you do it, it's pleasing to the Lord. This is not something that's pleasing later. It is something actually the Lord takes notice of. And what's important about that is you have to victimize your time, which what I hope you hear me saying is there will never be a good time to serve others. You have to victimize your time. You have to sacrifice your time in order to serve in a way that pleases the Lord, for the Lord to smile upon that, for the Lord to to want to grace us because of that is a sacrifice, a victimization of my time, which is interesting. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have. Same idea, number 11. Remember, victimize your possessions for the benefit of others. It is well-pleasing to the Lord the moment you do so. Now, praying those two things in your life are deeply dangerous. Think about this prayer, because you know the Lord will, according to 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, he answers the prayers that are according to his will. Here's a prayer that's according to God's will. Lord, show me where it is you want me to sacrifice and victimize my time for others. And then think about this prayer. God, show me how you want to victimize. You want me to victimize my possessions for others. Those are dangerous prayers. Those are dangerous prayers when the Lord says, okay, this moment. Because this moment in your eyes will probably be the moment you would prefer not to victimize. And this amount or this possession will be what you do not want to victimize. I once knew a man that would sell everything he had. And this is rather Old Testament-ish, but his idea to do it was, was really amazing. He would sell everything he had every seven years. Every seven years. He would cash out every seven years. And I asked him, I said, well, I didn't ask him. My, my, uh, my, the, people, the adults around me asked him because I grew up listening to this guy preach. And they would ask him, why do you do this? And he said, every seven years, I want to be reawakened to the fact that I trust God and trust him alone. So I cash out every seven years. And the amazing thing about his story was he said, every seven years, I have to cash out because it's so abundant. Can you imagine that? It's the same question I asked in front of an experiencing God class that roped me into this gig I've been in for 16 years. What if God asked you to victimize everything you had? That is not a Sunday school question. That is a Christ-centered, God-centered question. And what if he asked you to cash out? I mean, it's, that is a, he told Abraham, leave everything you have and go and I'll show you. Paul said, I consider everything lost for the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. I'm not telling you to go cash out today, but I am asking you to be careful with the but that comes in your mind as soon as I ask you that question. When the question comes up, would it, would, would, if the Lord called you to victimize your possessions, you go, yeah, but, be careful of the buts. And stop for a minute and realize that's probably not gonna happen in your life, but it might be a wake-up call to what the Lord's trying to do with what's in your hands and what's in your life and what's in your possession that he wants to use for the benefit of others. And gentlemen, with the whole teaching of Hebrews, it does all boil down to whether or not we are men who will have our lives victimized for the cause of Christ, for the benefit of others through Christ. That's the calling.
by the way we live when we leave this place. Let's pray together. So Father, what a book, and we have just scratched the surface. Um, I personally, as you know, did not even want to say, what if the Lord calls you to victimize your possessions? Somewhat jokingly in, the, in front of these men, I know what that cost me once, and I'm not sure I want to do it again. So as men who claim to know Christ, I pray that we would be quickly willing to victimize our time and our possessions to serve others that are immortal far quicker than we will cast judgment on those we don't know and far quicker than we will demand culture to do what we want it to do through the victimization of what we consider to be our lives may we begin to display a picture that shows lives devoted to Christ and, and in each place where I need to adjust, may you grace me to adjust. In the areas where these men need to adjust, would you grace them to adjust and to adjust well and that we would be salt and light in this community, that people would see Jesus in the way we cut deals, in the way we work, in the way we negotiate, in the way we sell, in the way we close, in all the ways we do life people would see Jesus in us by the way we react and may we be quick to correct when we do not put Jesus on display, which means probably a lot of correction every day. May we preach well today and uh, until we're gathered again, perhaps in the fall, would you bless these men, grace them. Thank you for their willingness to listen and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Guys, have a uh, great summer. We'll see you in the fall.